Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for June 14th, 2021. After a week of break, my name's Joe. And mine's Evan. And Evan, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we are going to do what we always do, try to take over the world. But we're going to do it slowly, in small bursts, mostly done through talking about things. You know, we're going to be pulling some ideas, giving our takes, emptying our take tanks, take tank. looking at look, looking at all the things, all the news that's fit to record on this podcast. We're going to make sure that we're taking in information from a variety of sources. We are going to do our best to keep our discussion in good faith, you know, assuming that everyone is working towards pro-social goals and no one has ulterior motives and uh gonna do our best damn it to keep ourselves and our listeners adequately informed yeah you know we we're only adequately informed not fully informed we know enough but we also know we don't know everything so we try to remain humble understand the limitations of our work and know that we aren't on the ivory tower looking down on everybody on in with their inferior opinions and knowledge. No, we know we are not up there. We know we are just as fallible as anybody else, but we like maybe to more think. so. Maybe more so, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe the character traits that leads pe- two guys to record a podcast of their their uh, you know, not super in-depth machinations is you know uh leads us down astray from the truth but at least we try to acknowledge that we don't know the whole truth um you know our viewpoint also comes from somewhere so but anyway 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 hey Hey, evan hey joe what do you want to talk about i want to talk about the number one thing that has been on my mind and that is Robert Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham is a very famous American comedian, and during the pandemic, he worked on a brand new comedy special for all of us. Our our content daddy has given us new content, <laughs> and this special called Outside dropped a couple weeks ago, and um, it has really not left my mind since I I first saw it, and. I've rewatched it and I love it. And I think you watched it as well. Yes, um, I have watched it. Yeah. And I want to I want to discuss it. I want to talk about what it means to me, why it resonated so much with me, why I think that it truly stands apart as a work of art and a work of entertainment. So I've got kind of four main themes that I have identified as driving the special of inside and we can talk about those we can talk about some of the other aspects of it because there's a ton to talk about um but the four i think main concerns of bo burnham's wonderfully funny and deeply emotional inside are pandemic life mental health the influence of technology and social media on society and a meta commentary on the nature of comedy itself and some of the limitations of comedy. So I think probably the easiest one to talk about is the way that Bo Burnham 
catalogs life during the pandemic. The conceit of this special is that Bo, during the pandemic, has been locked inside his house in one room, all alone, recording this special. Now, clearly, Bo Burnham was able to leave that small area and interact it looked like it was his, his guest partner. cottage <laughs> yeah exactly it, it's some sort of guest room he didn't actually live there but he uses it as a way to talk about the isolation that we've all experienced being secluded and sequestered away from everyone else and it really is kind of interesting where, yes, even if he wasn't locked in this room, you definitely see the toll that the pandemic takes on him and the lockdown takes on him. You see his hair and beard growing before your eyes as as he, you know, can't schedule a haircut during the pandemic and, and he lets it all grow out. And so we start with the normal boyish Bo Burnham that we know. And by the end, he he's a really grizzled and sad boy. Um, and so a lot of the content also kind of addresses what it is like during the pandemic and, and the feelings of isolation and helplessness that have come from it. One of the bits that I thought was really good at illustrating this was his Let's Play segment where, um, he, he does a Let's Play of his own life where in the corner he is controlling ostensibly himself through a video game and to advance to another day in the video game his only objectives are to play the piano find a flashlight and cry four times and that's his entire day you uh-huh. know and, and i think that's really relatable for a lot of us who felt like maybe we couldn't be as productive as we wanted to be and maybe things were getting a little bit monotonous maybe getting a little bit dull during the pandemic but nonetheless that was our life and bo burnham is able to depict that with humor and also a lot of truth i mean there's there's um moments both big and small throughout this special that really do i think put this era beautifully in a time capsule i think that the segment where we watch the clock strike midnight on his 30th birthday we definitely get the sense of of the time that the pandemic has taken from him and that it's taken from all of us, you know? He can't go and celebrate. He cannot express jubilation. All that happens is he's locked inside and, and the clock strikes midnight. So, um, you know, there are other more humorous ways that he talks about this. I think the, the FaceTiming with my mom song is very funny, you know, kind of mm-hmm. describing <laughs> what it's like to try to go through a pandemic, which forces us to rely on technology with people who maybe aren't as comfortable with technology. Um, that That's a really funny way to reflect upon it. And, and so throughout the course of this special, I think you really get the sense of what it was like to live during this time and the struggles that came along with it. And, and maybe at the risk of rambling too long here, I think it's that depiction and honest look at the struggle that, that really sets this apart because Bo Burnham shows the messiness of his apartment. He shows himself trying out different lighting choices different camera angles as he's learning to build all of the technical things needed to make this special for himself we he shows himself he leaves in scenes of rough takes or he shows himself editing the footage that we have just seen um 
he wants us to see his struggle. He wants us to see his breakdown and his emotion. And it's, um, you know, he, he's showing us that even, even for someone who is, I would believe, an artistic genius, it was a difficult time. And I think that that is meaningful to acknowledge. So, Joe, what, what, how, what do you think about the ways that um, Bo Burnham reflects pandemic life in his new special? I, you know, I, I did not click with this at the same level that you did. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just something about maybe I am not really wanting to, um, I don't know, uh, commiserate with any sort of the stuff about the pandemic. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of ready for it to be over with. And so, like, you know, I, I like some of the bits and all that kind of stuff, but it was like, I don't know. It just, I, it didn't quite click with me. Um, and I wanted to like it. I mean, I really like Bo Burnham, but it was just kind of, well, and then also, like, you know, all that technical stuff. I was like, geez, this guy's so talented and he's doing all this technical stuff. Oh my gosh, who is this guy? Um, so, I mean, I, I, I can understand why it's, you know, you like it and why other people can like it. But for whatever reason, it just didn't like click with me. Are you just too close to it? You like don't because I'm, I'm so ready to kind of examine through art what it has meant to live this past year and a half plus. Are, are, are you just too close to it right now or? I don't know. Uh, I just, I don't know if I want to ex like it just kind of sucked. But then also again, like not a, like I was of a position where not a ton of my life changed a ton. Like I still went to work every day. I still did my things. I, you know, because we were in a more rural area, uh, COVID never hit as much. So, like I had a little bit more leeway to do things with people, um, even though there were still risks. Um, you know, I don't know if I ever felt like the same emotions that were on display in that special, you know, and and I don't know if I would necessarily be able to discern those from just kind of whatever background emotions I've had in general in my life and whether those are pertaining to the pandemic or just, you know, background noise. So I well, don't know. Then I, I, I am perfectly happy then to filter it through my own personal lens because my experience with the pandemic, uh, for the bulk of it, I was unemployed. And so I didn't have a job to go to. I didn't feel particularly safe or responsible traveling to see family or going on on outings. Not to say that that um, anyone who traveled or saw anyone was being irresponsible. It's just different levels of risk sustained over different periods of time. Um, and then also all of my kind of second space is closed. You know, I, I couldn't go to the mm -hmm. movie theater, which is a very happy and safe space for me couldn't really even go to restaurants and so i 
I gosh, I really feel the 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 weight of feeling like you're living in one room because I think <laughs> kind of even before the pandemic, just being unemployed and and bumming around your house looking for jobs online, it's mm-hmm. it's a draining and taxing experience. So let's use that as a as a springboard to talk about how Bo Burnham talks about his own mental health because I think this is another really poignant part of the special is that he admits to feeling depressed, to feeling anxious, both before and during the pandemic. And we see Mm -hmm. him break down and we see him have these frank discussions. And I think that it's really important to see that kind of stuff play out, to understand that even people who we put on a pedestal like Bo Burnham can't escape these struggles and and you know if anything that's more validating for Mm -hmm. my own struggles it's like shit i don't have uh, anything that bo burnham has no wonder i feel like a bag (laughs) of shit all the time um yeah i get to feel this way (laughs) if he does you know it's maybe that's a little crass but that is kind of the uh one of the interpretations there joe i want to know because there's one scene and maybe it didn't stick out to you as much as it did to me and if so you Mm -hmm. can just uh blow right past it but when he has that discussion of of telling people not to commit suicide but it's done as him watching it well how did you respond to that segment um done as him watching it yeah so he's he's saying like hey guys i don't actually want to kill myself don't kill yourself but then it cuts and it shows like the 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 video is being projected and Bo is sitting there watching the video of him saying all this oh, okay. and he's just scowling the whole time because i mm. i that really stuck out to me especially on the rewatch so like i said if if it didn't stick out to you that's cool and i can just you know say my own piece but i wanted to give you the chance to yeah jump in. um say your piece yeah. Yeah. So uh, maybe for, I'll remember those, you talking about it. Yeah. So that's uh, for, for first of all, everyone should watch this special. I think this conversation is going to make a lot more sense if you've just seen the special. I I loved it, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. But apparently, it it can disappoint. But nonetheless, I'm recommending it. And so there is so Bo Burnham speaks about suicidal thoughts, and he speaks about the negative emotions that he's experiencing and so in the middle of his special he kind of has an aside where he says hey guys i don't actually want to kill myself and if you're thinking you know if you're struggling with these thoughts please don't kill yourself and then he kind of goes on this rant about it but like i said it's refracted through this meta lens where we're not just watching Bo on the screen, we're watching Bo watching himself on the screen giving this anti-suicide PSA. And I think it's that moment hits home for me because even though Bo is like very earnestly telling people that their life is worth living and that they shouldn't resort to suicide, he doesn't re- you can tell he's not really comfortable with how to deliver that message. And so mm-hmm. I think it exposes this really tough area for people who genuinely want to reach out, reach out and help those who are struggling with mental health. But we are so far away from knowing how to productively have that conversation that if you are someone who wants to help, 
it can feel kind of hopeless or, or you can feel sanctimonious trying to give that help when in reality, I think a lot of people need that help and people who need that help also want to give that type of help to others. But that is so that is such a difficult place and we don't have a good vocabulary for it. And I've never seen it displayed so artistically and thought provokingly as it was in this special. Hmm. I guess I hadn't noticed that. I mean, I mean, when you put it that way, I mean, yeah, it's definitely like when you talk about like suicide prevention, like almost all the things that people will say or are able to conjure up are like cliche in a way. Mm -hmm. It's like, don't kill yourself. You have so much to live for. Like I'm even doing it in a like quasi sarcastic tone like that. It's like, well, what everybody says that like and well, exactly. And, people, and that's that's the feeling and, you get from what Bo says. He's he's talking like, you know, oh, you know, you've got a lot of love in your life. Well, that's not necessarily true. And it has this tongue in cheek quality to it, even though you can tell that it's it's supposed there's there's sincerity at the bedrock of it. But you just can't access that easily. Yeah. And we've, you know you know over the like the last 10 years we've inundated you know spaces with that type of message of like don't kill yourself you are worth it you know people will miss you when you're gone don't kill yourself we'll help you'll be here when you help and and obviously people are still killing themselves so it's like what do you do after that you know what's the what's the next step in you know, trying to take some agency over trying to help not people not kill themselves. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I, I just think that the way that Bo reflects his mental health struggle and also acknowledges the ways in which our ability to talk about that are inherently inadequate really struck a chord with me and I found it to be one of the best parts of the special. So let's get through a couple of these other thoughts that I had and maybe we can loop you in here more Joe because they're they're more general and less related to the -hmm. pandemic like there are bits of his that I think could kind of come from any time and clearly were developed pre-pandemic so Mm -hmm. one of them expands upon something that he really struggled with at the end of his make happy special and that is what what is the role of comedy you know what 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 are comedians supposed to do in a society are they supposed to expose social flaws and foibles in hope of creating a better society are are they just a respite for the the unwashed masses as they go through their workaday lives you know what what is he really supposed to be doing what is the ethics of his profession and what is his responsibility as someone with a microphone and a very large platform and he has a song early where he resolves to heal the world through comedy and it's it's very tongue-in-cheek and it pokes fun at the egos of people who find themselves in positions of social power like Bo does. And and so you can tell that he's very aware 
of the self-indulgence of his entire profession. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he asks in the special, how can I help the world while also still getting paid and being the center of attention? And, and that's kind of, you know, the the dilemma of a lot of people who do performing arts or creative pursuits is that you 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 kind of do have this noble goal i mean look at us we want to keep our audience informed and bring about better discourse but you know we also get to be the guys who are i also want the shots. Pe- i want people to hear my opinions and go joe you're smart Exactly. That's a non-zero part of it. And Bo acknowledges it. It's time for us to acknowledge it. Um, and and so I think that he really does a good job of kind of wrestling with these incongruent goals of providing something good for other people while also fulfilling your own deep-seated needs for attention. And I, I think it's funny because it's clearly intended as a joke to say that his special will heal the world through comedy and yet i i still feel like i i felt a sense of healing watching it i felt myself and my emotions being validated and expressed in a way that was very soothing to me so even if it might be a bit um you know delusional to believe that Bo Burnham himself is going to be responsible for healing the world. Maybe he helped heal me. Well, what do you think, Joe? You think well, comedians I, can can fix everything? Well, I mean, it's like a, you know, it's their. Everybody can do things, but it's within a specific domain. You know, they. Um, what was it after uh you know that hit a hurricane hit um puerto rico there was that one chef guy who went there and just like cooked a fuck ton of meals for people and you know that was a really good thing that he was able to do and you know he he was a chef and you know that was a thing that he had resources in and that he felt comfortable doing but like nobody's expecting the chef guy to go and like i don't know craft a better public policy or fix inefficiencies within FEMA or mm-hmm. solve income inequality. He he's just there, you know, he, he could do what he can to make meals, you know? Um, and not to say that he, you know, he shouldn't be allowed to try and help on other things, you know, that he has to stay in his lane, but you know, you, he's able to help in a way that's, you know, uh, cognizant with his, you know, abilities, so comedians can, I mean, the way pe- comedians can help people is to bring them out of reality for a bit, you know, or at least uh, have uh, not be mired in the doldrums of it. Um, you know, they it's can- almost like comedy is a space where we're encouraged to reflect on reality, but we simultaneously have license not to take it too seriously. Well, be, like comedians will talk about this where they're like, basically what I do is I take over your thinking for like an hour or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like when you're sitting there watching a comedian, what you're doing is letting them essentially take over your inner monologue for a little while. I mean, this <laughs> is like good comedy um, mm-hmm. where 
you know, if you're engaged and laughing with it and all that kind of stuff, then you are just kind of letting them do the thinking for you. You're just kind of being taken aback by them. And that has value to people and can make their lives just a little bit better, you know, take them out of it for a little bit, give them a little break. So, yeah, I mean, there is value, but he also makes, you know, I remember him making, you know, kind of an absurdist joke about it. It was like anything that's bad in the world, I'll come and tell a joke. Like <laughs> even if even if it doesn't really change anything, I'll I'll be there and I'll come tell a joke. Yeah, if hopefully you wake this up, solves everything. If you wake up and your house is filled with smoke, call me up, I'll tell you a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I thought that was funny. I love that shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that there is some very good seeds of discourse planted about what the nature is of comedy, what its limitations are, and and also maybe optimistically what some of its potential is for helping people get through tough times. So the last thematic dissection that I want to address is about Bo's reflection on the increasingly interdependent relationship between humanity and technology, and particularly the harmful side effects of using social media. And I think that this is made really vividly clear in my two favorite songs from the special. And I just want to focus on a couple of really poignant lines from each of these songs to get across these points and kickstart this discussion. So the first is from the Welcome to the Internet song, where he depicts the internet as a place that offers a little bit of everything all the time. And I think that there's actually a really dark implication of having complete unfiltered access to all content all the time. And the way one of the ways he sums it up in that song is he's kind of listing things that are on the internet that you might see on a feed because right everything's condensed to one feed where kind of everything is agglomerated and so he says here's a recipe for pasta here's a nine-year-old that died and that just strikes me as such a dark but fair encapsulation of what it's like to be active on social media right we are constantly whiplashed between fun, relatable, lighthearted content, and then just the darkest depths of, of human suffering, right? And yeah. we kind of don't have good emotional protection for that yet. And we can't unplug, or at least we're pressured not to unplug. One of the refrains from that same song is, I think, speaking to the way that our society, or at very least the orchestrators of social media algorithms pressure us to stay plugged in. Uh, the refrain is apathy is a tragedy and boredom's a crime. We are exposed to this constant onslaught of negativity and we're told that we can't afford to unplug, that it's socially irresponsible to take a break. And so I think that Bo critiques the way in which social media companies and their proprietary algorithms chain us to this constant barrage of activity and the fact that 
that's not good for the human psyche. Yeah. I mean, it is alluring, you know, the internet, a little bit of everything, you know. And it's also, I don't know, I mean, this may not be the point of this song, but it's also um, gives people to access things that in older society there would not be access to. And sometimes that's good, whether it's a community for people that uh, traditionally had not been able to come together and share their experiences. But then it can also be bad because um, some people are into some pretty sick shit and can better express themselves through that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, some pretty morbid stuff. Um, Yeah. And and it's also interesting because Bo Burnham, like he's old Internet. Like, yeah, he's he's been on the Internet a long time. Um, You know, he was one of the first people. Well, I mean you get into debates of how first comes, but in within the length of YouTube and number of stars who have come up, he is one of the early ones um, in the game who came up through that way. You know, he was one of the first to, you know, people to break out and be like a mainstream person because of some YouTube videos. Um, so he's been around a while and yeah, there, there's just, there's, there's a lot on the internet. And, um, you know, it, it, it's also hurried yet. So not important, but feels like it's important, you know, like somehow the stance you take on Twitter on a certain issue is going to be the difference between it happening or not. Like that's just not the case, but sometimes we treat it as such. Yeah. I, I think the, the special really, Bo is frequently throughout critiquing that need, that drive, right, to always take a stance on everything. He has that stand-up bit where he says, is it possible for one person to shut the fuck up about one thing for one hour? You know, Uh kind of asking that open question. And he also has that really funny bit where he's like the corporate brand consultant, um, where he's mocking the way that brands attempt to prove that they're woke without actually contributing meaningfully to social change. That line Mm -hmm. I love is, I just tell them, you know, We have to let people know that J.P. Morgan stands against racism, in theory. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I I think that just the... When in human history have we ever had to live in a world where the same feed that brings us puppy videos can also bring us something deeply traumatic? And we feel not only like we can't step away from it, but we are responsible for commenting on it and making meaning from it all of the time we have to do a little bit of everything all of the time it's draining it's emotionally and psychologically draining well yeah but i mean thinking about it for a bit you know there 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 are aspects of like the news that is kind of like that where it'll be you know like i think of local news a lot where they'll bring you uplifting story and then you know real downer or something like that but then but then also with that, they provide context and, you know, they they, um, uh, uh, you know, they provide priming for it as well. You know, there's mm-hmm. like a lead up there and then a tail end, you know, to things. So you can decide whether you want to be part of that or not. Or, you know, you can turn off the TV for a couple minutes if you know it's a 
segment that you don't want to interface with and then turn it back on and it's still just going like it was whereas the internet you know i scrolling it just i mean i guess you could put your phone down but you want to get to the thing that's on the other side as well you know exactly and i think there's just a factor of sheer volume right the, the local news might be a little bit of everything for an hour a night and that's pretty easy to ignore if you want a to. A little remember, bit of some things, some of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the internet is not that. It is a little bit of everything all of the time. You can dive into Twitter whenever and have a nearly infinite feed of random shit. Some of mm. it good, some of it not so good. Well, like, then- I'm not on TikTok, but my wife just joined TikTok and... I, I just get scared like that is so totally the little bit of everything all of the time because it's just infinite short videos that encompass every fucking thing in the world. Yeah, and it's all there and you can't stop it. Well, and then also these platforms, they bake in another bit of the nefariousness where, you know, they have your feeds are curated. They're put together by an algorithm an AI and it changes Every time you hit, you know, you you crank the slot machine and hit refresh feed. Um, so if you, you know, if you're scrolling through something and um, you don't like something and then you hit refresh, you may never see the stuff that was on the other, you know, on the bottom past that thing. And you may never see it because you hit the refresh feed and it gave you a new experience. So those may just be lost to you. And so you get this experience of like still trying to clamor to see things, but like wading through it. And it, yeah, it, yeah. Whereas if everything was just posted like sequentially or by, you know, number of updates or, you know, what, what have you, then you could uh, better navigate it. But since they're going through and, curating your experience and presenting a new one when you ask for a new one then you get this sense of like seeing it to some form of completion before you do it again exactly and it's it's like addicting it's that little dopamine rush like you said it's like a slot machine right it's intentionally designed to give you that feeling yeah you know i hit I pull up and refresh on Twitter and I'm playing the slot machine of, am I going to get discourse that I'm interested in? <laughs> I'm like, and then I do. And I'm like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Um, and, and Bo Burnham acknowledges this. He comments on it at one point in the special. He says, Hey, do we ever think that maybe capitalizing on the neurochemical drama of people is not a great way to organize society? Yeah. Like, it's that way forever. Maybe that's not great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot of the social media. I mean, it's just how they've like really gotten into the mind, you know, how people's minds work. Like if you want to learn something about the world or, you know, humans or anything, the best way to you know really find out how it works is to have something be profitable about it. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it's quite people's attention is quite profitable so um these companies have come to learn some actual truths about it that otherwise we wouldn't have you know probably 
mm-hmm. through other means or just pure like academic research. So yeah, they know how to keep your attention. Yeah, but it can be so hard to keep up. And that's where I want to transition into my other favorite song. My two favorite songs in the special were The Little Bit of Everything All the Time and also his Funny Feeling song where he just kind of comments on some of the paradoxes of modern life. And there's a line in there that just spoke to me so much where he's talking about uh, the backlash to the backlash to the thing that's just begun because... I, I just feel like there's this phenomenon that happens where there will be the thing, right? A thing happens. Mm-hmm. And then thing adjacent emerges, right? People get Shout upset out to Jane about Jane for coming yeah. up with that concept. Woo! So people get mad about whatever thing happened. And then there'll be a second wave of people being like, hey, we don't need to get mad about this. Or, you know, it's actually problematic that you're calling this other thing problematic and then what happens is the people calling out the people calling out the thing is the first thing that i see and i have to do so much fucking digging to figure out what is even going on like what it's it's like uh you know it's almost like the allegory of the cave right like we're seeing the fucking shadows on the wall we have no idea what the actual things look like unless we really bust our asses and There's a lot of really good stuff in that song, but I we, we don't have to talk for 30 minutes about that one song, which I'm convinced I could. But, you know, <laughs> it's just it's exhausting, isn't it? To not only have to be aware of the things that are going on, but also be aware of the thing adjacent and then the backlash to that backlash. And that that's the, the line that I like in there. The backlash to the backlash of the thing that's just begun. These right. are not, it, it's not like long heated debates that we're having. It's thing happens and within a few hours, it has taken on a life of its own. And it just makes you feel so damn inadequate if you're not up on it. And that's everything. That's well, everything yeah. all the time. It's exa- that's, that's what I think part of what Bo Burnham is trying to say in these songs. It's exhausting and unproductive living yeah. like that. Well, yeah. Like, I feel like there, like, like I've been trying to come up with an example of this because it's all, it's always good to have like an example. Like, I swear there's one that comes up a lot where, um, like maybe some teacher goes like treads a little bit too far into the ground of like white people are shit or you know how you know uh in describing how racist american society has been you know sometimes you know to like a group of middle schoolers or something you know they'll go farther than people's sensibilities and then and then but what then will be the debate is not this one individual teacher's conduct but then they'll just say well it seems like we shouldn't talk about critical race theory in schools or or you know talk about race in this sort of way at schools and then then all of a sudden we're and then we're having a backlash to people saying that we shouldn't talk about race in schools where it was maybe this whole thing was spurred off by one maybe a little overzealous teacher you know Mm -hmm. and we're not talking about the thing I mean, I mean, uh, to go a little bit deeper, I mean, like this is this is like Fox News, like 
you know, they find the one guy who's a surfer who lives off of welfare payments and gets an Obama phone. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> that's an allegory for we shouldn't give people public benefits. And then then a backlash to people saying we shouldn't have public benefits. And then it's like, I don't know. Then there's just this one guy who's just kind of getting along and the discourse isn't about him. It's about everything but him, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And it's just exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. And yeah, as Bo Burnham points out in the special, why for the for the enrichment of maybe like six people, he's got a couple of songs where he satirically congratulates Jeff Bezos on uh-huh. uh, on what it's unclear, but you know I think the subtext is you you won you won this technological battle you motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah. Oh, did you have something else? I did. There was I you know while most of it like it didn't like click with me i mean i understand it but i it it didn't like he didn't take over my brain like i described earlier but there was one joke in there with like a little subtle insight that i thought was interesting with um the uh white woman's instagram song (laughs) this kind of poking fun at you know the aesthetic of white women's Instagrams and how there's, you know, all he staged like all these pictures and even dressed up like one and, you know, had, uh, you know, uh, some physical mannerisms that looked like how they posed for pictures on Instagram. But there was one moment on there where in the middle of the song, like the, like the aspect ratio changes and he's like, um, I don't know if this was from the character of white women's Instagram or uh, of Bo himself, but starts talking about like mom who died and I can't, you know, can't believe it's been 10 years and, and I, I keep trying to live without you, which, you know, at first I was, you know, I didn't think much of it, but when I saw it the second time, I was like, oh, you know, this kind of feels like how, so much of our social media is like us putting up a front to try and look, I don't know, aesthetically cool or, you know, that we are hip and all this kind of stuff. But then like, it's also strangely a space for us to try where we'll try to express our sincere emotions that are tough, but then, it's just weird given the context of what most of the other stuff is. Yeah. That's a really good parallel. It's almost the corollary to the little bit of everything all of the time, but from the posters end instead of the viewers end, right? We, we do kind of have not just one feed to consume all of this, but one feed to express our pumpkins and our, you know, our Lord of the punk. Ring quotes, yeah, incorrectly yeah. attributed to Martin <laughs> yeah. Luther King. Yeah. And then also, yeah, when we have something, a deep emotion that we want to express, like, I, I do think that that is still, when, when Bo is saying it, it's still from the, the character of the white woman Instagram. Mm-hmm. When, when I want to say something deep, like, I, I miss my mom who has passed, it's all in the same place and in the same voice. And it comes across in the same way. And and we have maybe some of that additional dissonance 
on the posting end as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely extension yeah. of the same thought process. Good, like, good connection. Yeah, there's like some incongruence there. Like, I don't know. If you have a feed where you mostly post pictures of your butt, like it would be weird to then also be like, I don't know, my father passed away or something like that. Yeah. It would just it'd just be weird where these feeds are somehow ourselves but it's also a curated part of ourselves and the actual like sincere part of ourselves often don't have room in that curated version yeah um and yet again that is more and more the socially acceptable place to elicit sympathy and try to gain support but it maybe maybe it's cheapened by the medium yeah I mean, I mean, and and that's the thing is that it's all just one feed. You know, you don't I don't subscribe to, you know, it's not like I have, uh, you know, the public policy Twitter and the weird musings about life Twitter and then also my sincere deep emotions Twitter. It's just my Twitter, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, it's like. You know, the little box asks you, you know, what's going on and, you know, it could be anything. And it's just kind of it's just kind of weird, you know, it can strike a tonal balance. You know, someday I'm making a joke about a dog's donger like at this (laughs) birthday party. I was just at where and then also, you know, express emotions about things that are going on in my life that are completely sincere but it it, there is a clash Mm -hmm. so yeah that was that was one thing i saw that i liked yeah so i i i just feel like i mean we've already been talking for like 40 minutes about this special and i feel like i could talk for hours and hours more i just think that in one artifact Bo Burnham has layered in very rich and detailed insights about a number of facets of modern life and modern society, both within the pandemic and without. And that's not even to mention the technical achievement of the special or the performative skill of Bo Burnham or really even most of the comedy or musicianship that went into this special just on an ideas level. I think that this is so brilliant and so worthy of discussion that I wanted to bring it to all of your attention. If you haven't seen the special and any of this sounds interesting to you, please check it out. Um, He very much did control my thoughts and my emotions for the full hour and a half. (laughs) I, I was Bo Burnham's little puppet. And I couldn't have been happier to be his puppet. Not his sock puppet, though, because that's also a thing. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Bo Burnham, Inside. It's my favorite thing I've seen in a long, long time. Nice. So, Joe. Yes, Evan. What would you like to talk about? You know, funny enough... I also have a piece of media that I want to talk about. Ah, doubling down on the media. Culture, it's things that we watch or consume. Um, Yeah, so I recently watched the show Mayor of Easttown. Um, 
And it's a show that is a mystery, solve it, whodunit uh, so show starring Kate Winslet as the uh, titular uh, mayor of East Town. Her name is Mayor, not Mayor. It's M-A-R-E, which is... They sure do sound similar, though. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. She is not the mayor. She's the detective. <laughs> Um, but she kind of holds court in this town. She people treat her as as an authority figure, as as almost a mayor. Yeah. Did we ever meet the mayor of Mayor's East Town? No. <laughs> <laughs> that would have that that would have just been an inception. You know. Um, That's season two. She's gonna run for office. <laughs> mayor is mayor of East Town. <laughs> mayor rides the mayor of the mayor in East Town. Okay, that I got, I got it all out. Moving um, on, moving on. <laughs> um, it's a detective drama of uh, you know solving a murder in this small town in eastern Pennsylvania. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily eastern, but I would think East Town would be in eastern Pennsylvania. Well, it is. It's it's right outside of Philly. Okay, okay. Well, you know, sometimes things are weird. Like in (laughs) Illinois, there's Salem, and then there's West Salem, which is east of Salem, Illinois. Fuck. Yeah, I know. Well, they both wanted to name themselves after Salem, Massachusetts, and one of them just went with it, and then the other one was like, no, we're West Salem, you know? (laughs) Because they're west of original Salem. Yeah, but not west Ah. of Salem, Illinois. Luckily, East Galesburg is east of Galesburg, and that makes things easier. But anyway, <laughs> um, so they're in eastern Pennsylvania. It's a small town, very, very tight-knit, and everyone is just dealing with their individual traumas. And, uh, well, I say individual, but, it, I mean, as it comes out more, just familial t- traumas that happen within their family units and all their family units are really closely intertwined. And, you know, there are some crime that is really causing some trauma and they're trying to find, you know, solve the murder of a teenage mom who uh, just passed, you know, was murdered in the community. And, you know, it's going through that. And, you know, my discussion isn't almost really about the show. Like I, I think the show is great. I really liked it. It is really, really well done. Um, it it grays, pays great respect to its location and all this kind of stuff. The acting is great and the writing is good where like basically every episode, like somehow every episode you're like left on a cliffhanger <laughs> that doesn't feel contrived. And like, yeah, it's it's good. It's good. It, it It's, um, to me, like, really good at creating something where when you're in the thick of it, you're, like, trying, you're shifting back and forth between different theories or, you know, what's going on. And then at the end, you're like, oh, I see it now. Um, so I enjoy that. But what I want to talk about is representation in media 
And this is a tub <laughs> this is a subject that is brought up by you know often comes up in different types of media um where maybe a piece of media represents you know there was a character or you know like in respects to like race or different types of gender or sexualities where you know, a movie will come out and it's like there's a character that is from Africa, but they're played by a white person or something or or or, um, you know, just stuff like that. Or the the uh, character who's from Asia played by a white woman or something like that. I'm thinking of that like one where Scarlett Johansson was cast. I think it was Akira. I don't uh, know. Ghost in the a, Shell. Ghost, Ghost in the, in the Shell. shell. Yeah. yeah. And there was a big conversation about that. And, you know, sometimes there and then there was another one about I, I'm just thinking about Scarlett Johansson's controversies, <laughs> the one where she was going to play a transgender person. But they uh, they ended up sacking that because of. Outrage. Oh, yeah. Like uh, Rub and Tug or whatever. I can't remember. I think that was the working title. But and I, you know, on this conversation there, there are kind of two things that I often think about. One is that the, that acting is acting, you know, actors are actors and there are only so many roles where they can play actors in media, you know, <laughs> you know, we, we have stories about other things. Um, and, you know, if you have a story about a plumber, you're not going to go and get a plumber to go and play the role of someone who is a plumber you know Mm -hmm. um because that's not what they're trained to do you know they're not an actor but then on the other hand you know there are certain characteristics where it was it's like you know you should be able you don't always need to have the biggest star or someone who's white to do it there are other people who want to be represented and you know, sometimes this falls into, you know, a critique of a specific work. But, you know, I would like to admit, you know, nobody's or, you know, I, I don't believe that most people would believe that any character who was of, you know, a certain descent, descent could only ever be played for by a person of that, you know, certain, you know, descendancy. But that you know, trying to get representation in media enough that they want some people and they'll find, you know, whatever current peg to stake that debate. So what, what is this? What am I getting at? And it's like, I, I have talked, I don't know if I've talked about this on this show before, but I'm always pining for some, representation of kind of what I see as like this more rural or non-coastal way of life or, you know, so I, I don't even know how to put it in terms, but media that speaks to the situations that I see that play out in my day-to-day life, living as someone in a smallish town in a more rural part of the United States, which is sometimes hard to come by. 
Um, you know, and the, the reason I bring this up is because I saw in Mayor of Easttown, I was able to f- feel this relation that this piece of media uh, either spoke to or took seriously the conditions that people like the people around me live in, um, which I liked. But it also just felt kind of jarring that like three like uh at least three like main characters throughout the the show or prominent characters i guess um are played by british actors like even kate winslet the the star of the you know the whole damn thing is british and like a big movie star and like it helps lead credibility to the product. And she totally took the part seriously and, you know, nailed, you know, the speaking part of it and tried to inhabit the mannerisms and really wanted to be part of it. And, you know, took it seriously, which I am not begrudging her. And like, I even remember there was, uh, I read some article where, you know, in preparation for this role, she like read a local newspaper from a small town in, Pennsylvania, you know, near where the town, you know, where this took place and, you know, would, uh, you know, read it to see like what was going on, the types of issues they talked about and how she always saw ads for Wawa, which is a gas station convenience store chain in Pennsylvania. And, you know, she thought of it, you know, came to think of it as this like magical place. And, you know, and then finally after, you know, when they started shooting on location was able to go to Wawa and, you know, just experience the gas station. And it's nice. And, you know, I as being from someone in, you know, an area where we have nice gas stations that also serve food, I can understand. You know, I like I like that's, you know, there's recognition being, you know, brought to these small parts of life that, you know, I enjoy and doesn't always seem to have, you know, cosmopolitan credentials, but, and, but, but at the same time, it was like, I don't know, like, what if we could just have someone where that was just part of their life and it seemed cool? Like, I don't even, I'm not criticizing mayor of East town. I'm not criticizing any specific work of media. It's just like, I wish that there could be some work of media that, you know, brings to light and takes seriously the plight of people like those around me while also like being represented by them by themselves. And I don't know, it's just, I, I, it just felt complex (laughs) or this feeling within myself. You got it. I I just spewed a whole lot. You got any ideas? Oh, uh, let's see. So, number one, here's the moment where I felt most represented during Mayor of Easttown, is when uh, she's at the bar after the the big reunion from the 25-year-old basketball championship, and then at the bar, they're playing uh, Mr. Brightside by the Killers. That's <laughs> That speaks to me. Um <laughs> Do you even did that moment even register to you or, or no. is okay no. yeah well that's the part that I most got um, but no I think it's interesting that you talk about um, sort of the permeability between 
Americans and Brits in acting roles. Um, or I guess Guy Pierce is Australian, but you know, like sort of, um, we, we don't really seem to mix a lot of things, but pretty much anyone who comes from an English speaking nation can do the accent and, and play each other, you know? Um, and so it's, I think of something like the wire, the wire is another HBO program from way back in the day. Fantastic show. Everyone should watch the wire. Can we just talk about the wire? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, um, you already had your chance. We could have. <laughs> David Simon, the creator of The Wire, was very intent on it being an American story. He wanted to tell a story about America with Americans, and so he wanted to reflect that in his casting. And um, if, if any of you know about the show, you'll know that one of the most prominent characters, Stringer Bell, is played by Idris Elba, who was British. And David Simon didn't know this at first, Idris Elba was told by a casting director who liked him and thought he'd be good for the part. Uh, she said to him, hey, Idris, David only wants to cast Americans, so you have to pretend to be American during casting. And he did. And by the time that it was revealed to David Simon that Idris Elba was British, he had already fallen in love with him for the role of Stringer Bell. And he said, all right, we'll have we'll have one non-American in this cast mm -hmm. because you're that good, Idris Elba. But otherwise, you know, we want to tell this American story. And... Yeah, it is interesting to kind of have this debate where on the one hand, performance is performance, right? And I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Joe, that that's the craft of acting is embodying someone who doesn't share necessarily demographic characteristics that you do. But then, yeah, there is also this impulse to say, why, why do we need a British person to play the grizzled small town Pennsylvania cop. You know, maybe we don't need a, you know, a grizzled small town Pennsylvania cop in that role, but is is there not any actor from the Rust Belt? Like, who so, can yeah, somewhere it? in yeah. between that, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, who, who could it be? And I think that there's just a lot to do with the fact that the entertainment hubs of New York and LA are so insular mm -hmm. that it can be difficult to pull talented people there and give them the actual connections and infrastructure needed to succeed so that when the time comes, you know, who are you going to cast? Are you going to cast someone from LA or London who has all of these credentials? Or are you going to try to f dig and root through yeah. <laughs> someone's background to find that they were actually, oh yeah, they did grow up in Pittsburgh or whatever, you know? And obviously, you know, representation occurs in more than just performance because I don't know if you were aware of this, but the guy, Brad Ingle something, who, whoever wrote the series mm -hmm. is from, yeah. outside of philadelphia so yeah. you know that's his representation that's i'm sure why it feels authentic is because he was there and he knows those people and he could write the characters right he wasn't theoretically writing about this low you know these characters as if you know what he thinks of people from these locations he knew these yeah he knew that's these characters in his life you know you would yeah. think and so Maybe maybe in that case, since we do have the credentialed writer helming the project, maybe in that case, it's easier to view the actors as just tools to tell his story of his mm -hmm. home. 
Yeah. So may- maybe maybe that's a good good way to split it. Is there's yeah. got to be somewhere. Somebody's got to know what's up. But then, then I, I yeah I also want to say that there are it, it gets complicated because like there are representations of the more rural life, but it's almost like of a different genre. Like they, it isn't like a gritty cosmopolitan HBO show that, you know, I find this, you know, there's this representation for, I don't know, our, our, the whatever heritage, but like, I don't know, idealized forms of it. You know, there, there is occasionally the movie that's like the, you know, some guy who's rural and he's like a real good guy and, you know, goes through some classic character arc or, you know, find, you know, finds out that the root of it was really just being with his family or I don't know, just like, I, I, I get what you're saying and I'm not I'm not trying to challenge you and say that these things aren't out there, but to to realize this is there is there an example that you're you're thinking of or circle like towards? I don't know I think of like I remember um, like uh, the movie because of Win Dixie um, that was a movie like I watched it when I was younger and it's more of a kids movie but it, like it represents small town life but it's like in this like kid realizing her greater good and being nice and whatever or like i what was that uh there was that one movie where it was like some like the presidential election came down to like a tie yeah (laughs) and it was just this you know this guy from rural america like what if what if we had just some guy try and figure out you know how to elect the president and it was a whole lot of like you know him basking in it but then realizing that the true thing was to for his daughter to take it seriously um so like i don't know it's just like you You know know, what this is making me think of um there's a specific director named jeff nichols and i know that uh the 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 core here is about like our experiences midwesterners but how that kind of generalizes to other small towns and how mayor of east town can accomplish that even in a, a pennsylvania east coast-ish setting mm-hmm. um but i think jeff nichols has found that small town aesthetic really well but his he's working more from the american south so he's from arkansas and a lot of his movies are then set in Arkansas or Mississippi. And I think that he is one, he, he is a master of documenting the authentic feel of living in a place that is kind of not doing so great, right? The people mm-hmm. are still holding out there, but there's not a ton of economic development. There's not a ton of culture, but he still dignifies his subjects and it's not just a a woe is them piece look at these poor simpletons but actually gives them agency and values their trials and tribulations and their loves and losses mud i think is especially fantastic at this um but shotgun stories is beautiful 
um, midnight special sort of refract refracted through a sci-fi lens is great. Joe, you, you should watch mud. Let's start with yeah. mud and go from there. Um, well, and then, but then there, uh, like there's also this other piece where it's just like, I want the representation, but then I also like want it to be celebrated widely. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's a tall order. I know it's asking for a lot. Like, I want, I want my story to be not only good and represented, but I want everybody to like it as well. Which, yeah, I that's know. asking for that's asking for a lot. <laughs> I know it's a lot, but it's just something I wish. You know, I mean, it, it's something within me. Um, but. Yeah, that's why I, you gotta you gotta advocate for the stuff. Like I'm advocating for mud. Watch it. Yeah, make it make it beloved. Mud. Let me. I'm gonna write this down on the napkin next to me. Mud. All right. Um. But yeah, I I liked a fr- like I feel like there's a lot of stories that talk about Midwestern or small town American life, and they you know, they kind of fall into two camps. It's like the woe is us is everything bad. Um, you know, things are kind of shit right now. And then also the like, ah, aren't these people wholesome? (laughs) Like (laughs) category. And they oftentimes coexist with each other, but it's like, man, I want the gritty realistic look at the, you know, the true motivations and ups and downs and treat us all as complex characters instead of a few sound bites, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, I, again, I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just kind of advocating for something out there that I wish I, I'm just advocating out there for something I wish there was more of. And more celebrated because, you know, ain't it great to be celebrated? I want to be told I'm smart. And I also want to see media that represents me in a good light and complex and is written about at Vox or the New York Times, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's uh, Mayor of Easttown. I mean, I just also really like the show. I mean, on all the representation stuff. I mean, it felt like they portrayed, um, you know, their subjects well and took it seriously and, and, you know, really, you know, looked at their characters as valid people and complex people and not just a, a caricature or a one line or, you know, bad or good, you know, so. Um, I, I know you must have really felt seen by how many hoagies they were eating. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a hoagie guy. At oh, heart. yeah. Big hoagie. <laughs> big hoagie guy. Um, but I, I do love a good Sammy. And I love crushed some Sandos. But um, how would you like the show? So I, I think I was less enthusiastic than you were. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, to my mind, should have been a movie, a single movie. Um, I just feel like there is a lot of subplot and a wow, lot of Mr. red herring guy thinks it should be a movie. <laughs> yeah. There's just like this thing that I want to call like mini series brain that I'm, I'm not thrilled about that infects some projects where like, I, I, I get that they wanted to be like really have a high fidelity to the area, but I feel like there's a way to do that. That doesn't take as much time. <laughs> like I don't need to see, 
uh, like, like why, why, why did I care that Mayor's daughter was like a lesbian that wanted to go to Berkeley? Like that didn't a- aid my enjoyment of the series. <laughs> like there's just so many detours. I don't know. I, um, I, I mean, I like it because that's a thing that happens a lot in these small towns where there's somebody and, you know, there's trepidations about whether they should leave or not. And, you know, deciding to finally go and let, let go of it. And, also as like a way to progress through the trauma of losing her brother and her relationship with her mother. I'm not saying it's inauthentic. I'm saying I was, I was here for a, a, a missing girl mystery. I wanted to see a gone girl. And that wasn't, it was just a detour from that. It was a distraction from what I came to see. Um, or where am I going with this? I, I, I just think that like, we kind of mastered how to build atmosphere and character quickly. And we're just, because we have more miniseries formats that allow us more time, we are forgetting about the economy of storytelling that I value a lot. I I just want everyone to watch the movie Fargo from 1996, the Coen brothers. They create just as great a sense of regional atmosphere as they do in Mayor of Easttown, and the whole movie is under a hundred minutes. So mm. that's kind of what I think. Like, I I was down with with the the main plot, and I think especially that episode where they finally have the showdown with the kidnapper was really thrilling. Yeah, but there was a lot of extra stuff in there that I wasn't as into. Mm-hmm. And and I guess I'm the opposite. I kind of like the padding. It it helps me, you know. Um, um, a lot of times movies move like too quick for me, <laughs> and I'm not always getting all the details, and often require a rewatch to to get everything that's going on. Um, so I like a I, I like the mini series format where it's kind of slow builds a little bit more has a little bit more simmering has more ancillary details and yeah (laughs) so (laughs) i difference of taste or you know of differences of which each other want (laughs) in our media do do you think she would have fucked uh zabel you know i don't know that that Oh. We're, we're deep into spoiler territory now, guys. Yeah. But um, no, I don't think she would have. I think that um, she really like once the case she could get solved, I think I think she would have dropped him. Yeah, probably. You know, it seemed like, you know, their last moments together or before their last moments, um, you know, that was something that she would have let slide, but then probably would have come to her realizations about mm-hmm. Um but man, it sucks that that guy, yeah, self-actualized and then, you know, <laughs> yeah. So lots of, lots of good characters. I liked, I liked the characters. Um, very good. All felt human and felt like people I've known before. Um, so yeah, I liked it. Evan liked it, but to a different extent and Yeah. Mayor of Easttown. It's on HBO. So, yeah. you know, if, if you're, you're not if on you're HBO, one of the lucky then ones. fuck you. <laughs> I wasn't on HBO until a couple weeks ago, and it's through my friends. Don't tell HBO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They'll get mad at me. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you got anything else you want to say, Evan? Um, is your take tank empty? Uh, you know, you know what is a good miniseries? Uh, the plot against America. That's like a year old at this point, but I liked that. What was it about? Uh, so it's based on a Philip Roth novel, and it's an alternate history about if the United States didn't enter World War II and uh. Charles Lindbergh becomes president and sort of um, distances himself from the Allies and is sort of in a neutral but buddy-buddy relationship with Hitler. And so then it explores, like, the anti-Semitism that would bubble in the country and um, that kind of thing. It sounds like we got a real Tito II of Yugoslavia on our hands. What? (laughs) I didn't understand any of that. (laughs) So Yugoslavia kind of did that, but from, like, the the, uh, communist world... Um, they were a communist country, but they were independent from the stretches of the USR. Like they were not dependent on the USSR Hmm. for, um, all of their economic stuff or resources or anything like that. They were, they were independent, but also still communist. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were. You know, they were able to work with the Soviet Union on things, but then also were not beholden to them. Gotcha. So, so it's just a little interesting quirk of history. Well, yeah, Joe, if you're, if you're already doing uh, HBO anyway, Plot Against America, that's my pitch. Let's just load everything into the queue. <laughs> God, there are so many fucking things out there in the world. Yes, there to are. Watch. A little bit of everything all the time, man. That's the new name of the show. A little bit of everything all of the time. Um, Honestly, I think I think we have hit the sweet spot, right? We, we acknowledge there's too much shit to be fully informed, but you can grab onto that life raft of adequately informed. Enough to talk you, about it. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't sink into the, the sea of endless content. Right. We're not shooting blind. We're not shooting blind, but we don't have the full picture. We just, we just, uh, we got some new glasses. It's not quite right, but it's better than before. You know, I couldn't watch the underground railroad, but I did watch mayor of East town and Bo Burnham special. (laughs) Haven't gotten to the Upshaws yet. You know, there's a lot of, there's just too many things. I haven't read all the articles I like on Twitter, you know. I have Michael Lewis's book sitting here. Haven't opened it yet. I have so many books sitting everywhere that I haven't opened yet. (laughs) Also on the pile is Brandy Carlisle's memoir and The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money by John Maynard Keynes. Oh, man. Got some some old school stuff. I'm a man of multitudes. I have many interests. Nice. Well... (laughs) (laughs) As clearly as we have shown over our catalog, um, yeah, we've talked about a lot of different things. So anyway, I think that uh, brings us, unless Evan has one last thing to say or not. Baba Booey. Ooh, good last words. Um, (laughs) We'd like to thank everybody for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you have anything you want to tell us, 
please email us at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. I check it every week before we start the show. So who knows? We could do something. I don't know. Tell us a little bit of something some of the time in, in the email. Um, we'd like to thank Anthony Hirsch for the music, as always. Um, but yeah, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.